This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, transformative principal and author of the book, School X. I'm a former principal, all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant temporarily based in Eastern Long Island. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Well done there, Jethro. Good to see you again. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, excited for our conversation today about the challenge of threat assessment in schools. And we are uh, talking with Dr. Glenn Lipson again, who was last on episode five of the podcast. And here we are, episode 107. We're also broadcasting this live on wisdom thank you glenn appreciate that um so if you want if you uh are using that app we sometimes do live shows there so um and if you're listening uh say hello we'd love to love to chat with you all right uh fred do you want to introduce glenn anybody who has been on this podcast is familiar with dr glenn lips and he's one of the leading forensic psychologists in the united states and he has many areas of expertise that we could tap into. But for today's purposes, we're going to be talking with him about the issue of threat assessment in the school environment. Uh, he and I have had several conversations over the years about the role that social media plays in terms of alerting people to potential threats or 
in some cases, and, and we'll talk about this, ways in which social media is overlooked when it could serve as a legitimate tripwire for the kinds of events that are taking place. So uh, anything else you'd like to add on this, uh, Glenn? And that's that's more than adequate. Thank you for the invitation and, and thank you for the brief description. It is a pleasure. It's always fun to talk with you, whether we're on the podcast or just in a bar somewhere. So. <laughs> yeah, but never behind bars. Okay. No, thank God. <laughs> How's that for minor miracle? In any case, Glenn, let's um, in, let's turn this to an uh, unfortunately very serious topic. Uh, about a week ago, Jethro, was it? We did a preliminary discussion of the events that took place in uh, Michigan, uh, in which four teenagers lost their life, and the alleged shooter is a 15-year-old sophomore named Ethan Crumley. And as Jethro and I repeatedly said during that episode, there's a lot we don't know, and there's a lot of investigation that still needs to take place. I, I think I've heard law enforcement say five or six times that they're going to do an extremely deep dive into the online activity of this young man. Uh, there's already been spillover investigation into his parents' social media, which I think is an interesting aspect of this case. Um, but there are a couple of things that seem relatively well established, and they, I think, immediately call into question, as a couple of hundred million dollar lawsuits have also done, uh, you know, regarding whether or not the school responded promptly and effectively to what was put before them. And the two events that seem clearest at this moment, three, I'll say three, actually. Number one, the fact that a teacher observed him searching for ammunition using his device in school, that he was seen with a drawing that appeared to depict people lying in pools of blood with bullet wounds. And the night before he had posted on Instagram, basically a reference to the, uh, I forget the exact quotation, it was the same thing Oppenheimer had posted about, I, I am the bringer of death, so the end of the world. We could look up the quote later. But in any case, those three things are, are known facts at this moment. I guess the question um, that is in everybody's mind is, were those sufficient to compel action on the part of a school system? Okay, so let's let, let me first say yes, and there was action. The question was whether the action was sufficient because there's a meeting with a child and a meeting Bingo. with a parent that came from that. Right. And the second issue is hindsight bias. Of course. And that is when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We know the event. Now people could go back and cherry pick a number of bits of information and say, this was totally predictable at the time. Why didn't you see it? Why didn't you respond the right way? And what gets lost is all the correct responses that happened along the way. So in the field of threat assessment, we often combine that with management. And the reason is, if we perceive someone is posing a threat, we don't know if people who pose are gonna carry it out. But we do know that's a good point to manage what's going on, which means at that point, you want to do a deeper dive if people feel that when, that someone's posing a threat. And you obviously had some teachers, probably peers and others who felt that this was someone who was really posing a threat. Now, 
there's another issue that comes up and that is threat assessment has emerged as a separate discipline. So it doesn't necessarily mean that a school counselor or a psychologist or a social worker or a psychiatrist or a marriage and family therapist or any other type of counselor has been trained in this. And sometimes the assumption is that they will be able to make a determination of whether or not there's someone here who is not only making a threat, but posing a threat. And the reason is there is difficulty connecting thought with action. Mm-hmm. Because many people in their lives have even thought about suicide at one point, but majority of people who've thought about suicide never commit suicide. It's just the passing thought, and they talk themselves out of it. You don't know exactly what happened, but if you look at the shootings that happened in Sandy Hook, you have a parent buying a gun, then you have events that follow after that, and you end up often with parents who end up getting the very weapon which causes the harm because it's a way of connecting to that child because that's what the child is fascinated with. How do, how do things uh, take place in, in terms of you know, what messages are, are given? And one of the problems we have with the whole issue of uh, firearms is that they're so tied to not only suicide, but they're also tied to homicide, and there's a link between suicide and homicide. Right. And obviously, in terms of things like suicide by police, which people attempt to commit sometimes, um, one of the issues that I think we need to circle back to a little bit, Glenn, though, is that I think you're absolutely right. The threat assessment has become a standalone discipline, which requires a fair amount of training. You and I have spoken at at least one event together on, on all of this. Doesn't that underscore the need in every school district, though, for well-established procedures that can be followed by anyone in, uh, you know, when they're assessing the situation? So you, you were asking a question about what procedures people need. So one of the wonderful things we've seen develop are some real practical, practicable models of threat assessment that we didn't necessarily have prior. Just within the last half a year to this podcast, the National Threat Assessment Center released uh, a report on instances where schools were successful in, in, in preventing school shootings. And what you're seeing is that this requires a multidisciplinary approach, but it also requires that the people who are doing it have particular training and expertise in this area. So it's nice to have someone who's a counselor involved, but unless it's a counselor who's done threat assessment and has been trained in it, the the quality of their work may be lacking. Now you're, you're gonna end up with lay professionals in mental health who have learned how to do this and they don't, they haven't gone to training, but they're, they're, they're well read like they've read the Handbook of Threat Assessment. They've, they've read a number of books which are really important in this area, which are the tomes in which we base our practice on, uh, uh, books by Jim Kaywood and others who, who practice in this area. They've used the RAGE-V, which I'm a co-author of, a risk assessment guideline for the evaluation of violence. RAGE-V, downloadable for free. Uh, 
R-A-G-E dash V. Uh, published in 2006. It's still valuable today. So you need to have people who are trained in this and, and work together. The One of the cases I presented with Fred now a number of years ago involved the uh, emergence of the school threat assessment team we have in San Diego. It's a multidisciplinary team that meets on cases where there were facts similar to what happened in Michigan and we sit together and work. Because one of the problems that we have is expelling a child from school doesn't get rid of the threat because now they have more time to plan and they're not in that school. How do we help a family and a child in this situation to appreciate the nature of what's going on? And often that involves a type of fact-finding and gathering of information that you could show a parent, that you could show others and, and prioritize it. So when we formed the STAT team, which took us a couple of years, we had a school case with similar factors. We had someone who was found with shells, claimed he had no, no firearms. He said someone gave him bullets. Hmm. He had pictures and a note from Columbine. Fred may remember this from the presentation. I do. And, and what he basically did was he had pictures of headshots of dead people. And in a similar manner, when confronted, he said he was working on creating a video game. Which is exactly what Ethan Crumley said. Exactly. And if you want to see the video games this person created, it's, uh, on, it's on YouTube on iReapZZVids. So iReapZZVids, he assumed the identity of a woman first shooter gamer. And from getting up to 12 to 13 million viewers a month, that's how he's able to finance the arsenal that he developed while planning to go in and commit a school shooting with you know, plans and, and, and development. Glenn, there are so many layers to that particular scenario in terms of the state of our society. It, it, it's really absolutely staggering to me. I, you know, I know that we have listeners, um, some of whom are in my immediate family, who are very adamant about the role that video games play in our society and the development, particularly of young men. It, it disturbs me a little bit, putting aside whether or not there's any direct psychological connection. It disturbs me a little bit that the design of the games could theoretically be serving as a cover for these kinds of homicidal ideations? Well, again, it's the relationship between thought and action because you have you could have kids who play these games and are on now electronic game teams in school districts and competing sure. at a statewide level. Uh, I know. Who, I know. Who there will not be, who there will not be a problem. So the issue becomes one of what role does that game play you play in someone's life in the formation of their identity for example we know the pseudo commander identity is something that we've seen involved in a number of shootings of both uh, adults and, and children in, in terms of those types of events so again we need to do a deeper dive in terms of how these intersect but one of the ways i've talked about this and, and you've heard me mention this before fred so i'm repeating myself to you but one of the things we look at is the coolidge effect which we know from neurosciences, which is what is highly stimulating tends to produce the neurotransmitters that get us involved in continuing to do that. And video games 
provide that perfect formula. That's why there is a diagnosis from the World Health Organization of uh, internet addiction disorder, because you have children who will now sit in front of a video game where they'll have bottles that they drink out of to urinate in so they don't have to get up from the games. Houses have been robbed. They don't know what's going on. And the way I described this before was we we're noticing all these misdiagnoses, including ADHD, which was uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder rather than talking code, <laughs> which uh, was misdiagnosed because people needed the constant stimulation from video games. And you also found people not being able to associate in a genuine way with uh, females in terms of males. Interesting. Um, yeah, they, Phil Zimbardo did a number of different videotapes on whatever had become to males, and he found that there was a real impact of these video games. The issue is they could form a disinhibition where you could practice, and when you de-individualize someone, uh, when you dehumanize them, and when you devalue them, which often happens with kids who are angry and influenced by these these games, it then makes it easier to uh, engage in acts of violence. So we have to see how that game is being used. So I, I hope I'm, I'm giving a sense of complexity here because that gets lost by the media. Sure. What was the solution? We discharge this kid? Or what, what is the crime you're going to charge when nothing well, committed yet? Yeah, to be fair, I don't think that this... <laughs> At least I'd have a hard time wrapping my head around any specific crime with respect to any of the personnel that I've read about so far. I think the much more um, challenging issue that the school district and potentially the personnel are facing is the civil liability arising out of you know, whether or not procedures were properly followed or were even in place. I think one of the, you're right, I understand having had lots of opportunity to speak with you. I understand the challenges innate in trying to do anything with a child, particularly if you have resistant parents, which seemed to be in the seemed to be the case here, which could have been for a host of reasons, and, and I'm sure some of that will get parsed out. I think the most specific issue that is worth addressing is whether adequate steps were taken to secure the physical items within the school's control. And I don't think there's any reasonable debate that they would have had a right to examine his backpack and his locker. And with the presumption that he's not going home, maybe that would have prevented this particular violent act. Um, that's going to be one of the speculative questions, I think, that has to arise. Right. And but the issue is... Uh... What do we do with these? What do we do with solutions, right? Because we've talked about do we do we have metal detectors when students come in, or do we only evaluate someone when they have an evaluation like this and we see they've been looking for bullets? Then maybe we search their lockers then, because yeah. what we have is an imminent risk in an exigent circumstance where we're able to do something like that. Sure, is that part of the policy? Those become really important after Parkland. We, uh, we have something called GVROs in some states, which are called gun violence restraining orders. Mm -hmm. And what they allow you to do is go out and look for guns if threats have been made or threats have been posed. Then you have to get sophisticated in terms of what's the difference between 
an implicit threat and a direct threat. And you have to know how to uh, address what we call implicit threats, which are threats which are indirectly made, but don't necessarily have that actionable language that you have with the direct threat. We don't want to over-respond to a direct threat, and we don't want to under-respond to an explicit threat, implicit threat. And that's where we end up involving what are known as uh, threat assessment teams or threat assessment mm. management teams. And that's that. those are the models that we're trying to create now, where we bring in the different factors, and it has to be multidisciplinary. Right, of course. Yeah. Would you look at some if, if we if we take for a moment as factual the existence of the drawing, is that the kind of thing that might be characterized as an implicit threat? It depends on it depends on the drawing and the purpose. That's why he tried to uh say right. it was a video game. Right. And uh you know, it depends also what someone saw. Um, I have seen miscarriages of justice where people have been convicted on drawings they did when it later on it turned out someone else did the crime, but they happened to have very uh, explicit, horrible drawings. And so again, what's the relationship between thoughts and actions? What is someone expressing? There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE. <laughs> 